Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидений к нам амен прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. It is impossible to think of Russia today without thinking of Vladimir Putin. More than any other major national leader, he personifies his country in the eyes of the world and dominates Western media coverage. In Russia itself, it's been said, in hyperbolic fashion, that there is no Russia without Putin. But as my guest Tony Wood argues, in his new book, Russia Without Putin, this focus on Russia's president distracts us from a real understanding of the country. This is especially important for the West. It needs to shake off its obsession with Putin and look beyond the Kremlin walls if it's going to ever build constructive relations with Russia. Tony Wood lives in New York and writes on Russia and Latin America. He's a member of the editorial board of the New Left Review and the author of Chechnya, A Case for Independence, and his writing has appeared in the London Review of Books, The Guardian, N Plus One, and The Nation, amongst other publications. His new book is Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War, published by Verso. I've also provided a partial transcript of this interview. I'll put a link up in the show notes and on the podcast website. Here's Tony Wood. I read the title of your book, Russia Without Putin, as having really a double meaning. One, I think, is analytical, you know, the need to look at Russia without focusing so much on Putin as a personality. And the second, I kind of read as a projection in that it's pointing to a future of Russia without Putin and trying to figure out what that might mean um, to some extent. So I thought I'd ask you to start off by talking about what do you mean by this title, Russia Without Putin? Yeah, I think you've identified the two uh, different things I had in mind. I mean, I guess there are three components to it, right? Because on the one hand, the, it derives obviously from the 2011-2012 the protests against Putin's return to the presidency, you know, Russia vs. Putin. Um, and so, but and in the Russian context, that has a particular meaning. And what I did was just to kind of appropriate it for my own uh, analytical ends. Um, and I think the two premises you're talking about, the analytical one of uh, how to how the West should understand Russia without focusing so much on the personality of Putin, and on the other hand, the second one of projecting into the future what that system is going to look like if it doesn't have Putin at the top of it, I see those two things as really interlinked, and that really the West is not prepared for whatever comes after Putin because it sees the system as being so bound up with his personality. And so I think one is a necessary step to the other. Yeah, it's it's really and, and the thing is too uh, another component I think to your title is also a critique in the sense of most of the commentary about Russia is as you say is a kind of obsession <laughs> a focus to the point of obsession with Putin as a personality as basically the alpha and omega of Russian state and society. So uh, talk a bit about how you're trying to a, if that is, if your title is also a critique, and what is the importance of trying to understand Russia today without so much focus on Putin? There definitely is a strong element of critique in, in the title too. That's absolutely right. Uh, one of the things I found while working on this book uh, over the last few years is that, you know, I found I was reading the same book again and again and again, that every book on Russia has to have a biographical portrait of Putin as a guide to understanding how the current system works. Um, and I've, I've done it myself in this book because it is impossible to write a book about Russia without putting Putin himself front and center and his biography. And I've tried to do it slightly differently, and we can talk about where that leads me, analytically speaking. But I think there, the, the, the thing I find uh, 
sort of very counterproductive about the Western focus obsession with Putin um, is that is, I mean, aside from being bad politics, in my view, the sort of focus on personalities just distracts from larger structural questions that are really the ones that weigh on people's lives and make a real difference. I mean, that's a general point that applies not only to Russia, but everywhere else. Um, but also it's it has a kind of a perverse uh, narrowing and self-confirming effect, right? That the more Putin becomes indispensable to any description of Russia, the more every successive description of Russia has to have him in there. Otherwise, people won't understand what you're talking about. Because, you know, you imagine every news report about Russia, even if it's about, you know, reindeer herders in Yakutia, has to have some reference to how this relates to Putin and his power system. Is he in control of this remote outpost or, outpost or not? You know, and, and I just think that's so... Um, it's really counterproductive. I think it just narrows the horizon within which people are framing what's happening in Russia. And of course, you know, this is not to say that Putin is not important or that personalities don't matter, right? I'm not trying to tilt into some, you know, crude sort of uh, structuralist or, you know, uh, anti-personal uh, perspective. But I think the, the the stick has been bent so far in the personalist direction that I thought it was time to push quite hard back in the other direction and maybe we'll end up somewhere more reasonable as a result. Right. You know, it's it's interesting now that I think about it. In many ways, a lot of the same mis analytical methods and to some extent even misconceptions and mistakes that were done by Sovietologists are being repeated uh, in the analysis of of Russia, and this is not to say there are, there isn't a lot of good scholarship that that's definitely the case, but at least trying to understand it in a you know popular way, you know, at least the Sovietologists had the excuse of not having sources, right? right it's really interesting right. that there is some sort of parallel here. Definitely, I mean, there's. I think the the focus, the obsession are with Putin. There there are two different components to it that make it so strong and so deeply ingrained at the moment. And one is, this is a global tendency to report and analyze politics using personalities, right? This is, and this is happening everywhere. Uh, I mean, I, you know, as someone who grew up in the UK, I've seen this process happen with British politics that it's become, especially in the 1990s and with Tony Blair and New Labour, there was a really strong presidentialization, if that's a word, of British politics, where, you know, it, it's a party system, one votes for a party that then has a leader who is prime minister. But in practice, elections became sort of referendums on leaders. And that's, you know, constitutionally, that's not correct. But in terms of media portrayal and analysis, it was very personality focused, uh, and became much more so. And I think that's true globally. And there is this tendency in reporting to sort of, you know, India is the place that is run by Narendra Modi and likewise Turkey, everyone focuses on Erdogan as the kind of main prism through which to understand the place. So there's a sense in which Russia is typical of that uh, dynamic. But I think there is an additional component where, you know, we are seeing a rerun of Sovietology, uh, the the sort of reading of the, of the entrails of, you know, who is in and out of the Kremlin and all of this stuff. And it's uh, not to say that stuff isn't interesting or politically significant to some degree, but I think it's there is a problem of of uh, scale of uh, an explanatory weight, uh, and I think he, there is a really close parallel for me with the kind of Sovietology here that that people are assigning huge weight to Putin's you know mood swings or uh, character traits that I just think shouldn't be made to bear that weight. Um, I mean, I guess one other thing I would say about that is. Um, and this is very hard to measure, but I think over time there is this weird feedback loop where the West's obsession with Putin has actually had an effect to some extent within Russia itself, right? That the conviction outside Russia that Putin is so central and such a terrible figure actually bolsters him domestically and makes him, you know, makes him more indispensable to the system than he would have been before. I think there is some sort of peculiar effect going on there that I think the the, the Putin obsessives in the West would not be happy to know about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And I, I have a suspicion that this is the trend. There's a certain irony in, in the betrayal of him as being so larger than life and control and all of this here in the Western press in particular, that it, it create it also it feeds into Putin's very own myth 
of himself as the, you know, there's no Russia without Putin, right? <laughs> now, your analyses and your writing over about Russia over the last 10 years or so, in fact, longer, um, has been it's explicitly a left-wing analysis of post-Soviet Russia. And leftist analysis of Russia, you know, as you know, are few and far between, particularly outside of Russia. Um, so what, in your view, are are the elements or what elements would you include in a leftist analysis of contemporary Russia? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, in some ways, setting aside one's political perspective, I do think that Russia experts, uh, people commenting on Russia from outside, a lot of their perspective is shaped by the moment at which they encounter Russia. Right. So people who encountered Russia in the Brezhnev years have a particular angle on it. People who encountered it during Perestroika have another very different view of, of what is happening in that country and, and what the perspective, the possibilities are. Um, I think my own first encounters with Russia really shaped my view of, uh, shaped my understanding of the place. So I first visited Russia in the early 1990s, 1993 and spent a lot of time there every couple of years over the course of the 1990s. And that was really a very traumatic time. I think my sense of what was happening in people's everyday life uh, was really informed by that uh, just total collapse of an entire worldview, an entire economic system. So um, I think the first, the sort of founding premise of my analysis of Russia was really to try and understand what had happened and to try and understand it from the perspective of uh sort of everyday life, how people were living with this sort of in the aftermath of this uh, disaster, if you like. Um, and at the time, um, what I was reading about Russia as I was experiencing this was was just very upbeat, a lot of it, right? A lot of the Western coverage was, well, you know, things are a little difficult right now. It's the transition. But, you know, eventually, if they keep following our advice, then they'll get to the destination. It was so at odds with what I was seeing that really the founding premise for what I wrote about Russia thereafter was a combination of, on the one hand, uh, skepticism towards Western accounts of Russia, uh, that you have to look past their very strong ideological assumptions and their own preferences. Uh, and on the other hand, just looking closely on the ground at what was happening in Russia. Um, I don't think that combination has to be left wing in any particular context, but in the case of Russia, it definitely was because you know, there was such a strong uh, liberal ideology about what was happening and what needed to happen in Russia, and that was having such clearly negative effects. Um, and on the other hand, the willingness to listen to what Russians were actually telling you, if they disagreed with the liberal perspective, to some extent, one had to either be, you know, on the left or on the right to, 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 to be receptive to that. Um, so I mean, I guess that doesn't quite answer your question. But my, in terms of what the the, the basic uh, outlines of a left analysis of Russia would be, I would say it has to really engage with what's happening uh, and to have uh, some sense of, of structure, right, of what is happening to this whole country, uh, to the different components of its economy, what is happening to it socially in terms of class. That's a dimension that is missing from a lot of uh, accounts of Russia. Um, and, you know, that's a very hard thing to do. And one of the things I found while reading the book is I was try I was having to synthesize a lot of stuff written from a variety of perspectives and some of it, you know, Russian sociology, some of it, uh, Western cultural analyses. There was a lot of different perspectives, but there were very few things that gave me what I needed. So I think to some extent, there was a feeling that leftists writing about Russia have to do a lot of, you have to be prepared to do a lot of legwork yourself to get get the information you need so so uh, yeah i guess if there was one word or concept that sums up i think a left approach to russia now i think it's just you have to be curious you have to be willing to push past the the presuppositions of liberal analysis but also push past you know standard old uh, generation left-wing views of you know what russia is and and even what the Soviet Union was, you have to be willing to question all of these things. Most narratives of, of post-Soviet Russia emphasize a break between Yeltsin and Putin. And a lot of this, I think, is is whether uh, recognized or not, very ideologically driven, right? It depends on how you, what you think about Yeltsin, the Yeltsin period and what you think about Putin and vice versa and, and how they relate to one another. But, you know, your book stresses that 
there are continuities between the two, the two periods. Uh, what what are those continuities? I mean, I see these two uh, periods as uh, phases, right? Successive phases in the evolution of a single system. So uh, while I'm trying to stress the idea of continuity, I should say it's not, I'm not equating the two or saying there's, you know, an identity. It's more a case of there's enough commonality between the two to suggest that they should be grouped together as one thing rather than seen as fundamentally, uh, you know, distinct, like as if there's some great rupture. I think the, the core, uh, different, um, the core differences are really matters of uh, style in terms of personal leadership. There's also differences of, uh, of context, both geopolitical and socioeconomic, that really mark them apart. Uh, there's also the matter of luck, you know, high oil prices. You know, if Yeltsin had had the oil prices that Putin had, uh, we'd be in a fundamentally different situation, I think. I, so a lot of the continuities I see are really more focused on the internal evolution of the system. And here I think that really a lot of what, uh, certainly in the West, people criticize Putin for certain, you know, kinds of authoritarian behavior, reigning in of the regions, um, uh, control of the press, galloping corruption, all of these things not only were present under Yeltsin, but actually the, the, the foundations were laid during the Yeltsin years for what then developed under Putin. Um, and the, the clearest example I can think of this is the constitution, right? That that you know that, that was imposed after this slightly dodgy referendum in 1993 like all of putin's presidential power uh derives from that uh moment where yeltsin resolved the conflict with the parliament by force um and so if you want to kind of undo this sort of contrast between yeltsin the democrat and uh putin the authoritarian all you've got to do is look at that moment and then you understand that you know in that particular moment when a liberal or someone committed to a liberal free market transformation of Russia, when Yeltsin was in charge of this quite authoritarian constitutional setup, that was perfectly fine. When someone with a slightly different emphasis is placed in charge of the same structure, the West is suddenly, you know, has a totally different attitude. But fundamentally, that structure, uh, what what the Russian leader is able to do totally legally uh, is, is the same. Um, I think the other thing is the there are there are ways in which the the Yeltsin Putin system has evolved, but there is an underlying commitment to uh, the principle of private profit and the principle of capitalism that has not changed. I think the faces of you know the super rich have certainly changed the personnel, the lineup, how they made their money, and as we can go into that, there's a lot of different reasons in play there. But the fact is you know, Putin has not overturned capitalism in Russia. It's not a state socialist system. And the degree to which he has reasserted the role of the state in the economy, um, I mean, in some ways that that's caused panic in the Western financial press. You know, everyone has been up in arms about that, at least since uh, the Yukos case, if not before. But really, that's I see that more as, a, as a, an adjustment of of the model rather than a fundamental shift in the model. I think the the, the business elite of the time took it that way as a, as a, as a shift in the model. And, you know, it's always interesting to me to look at the fact that since Putin has been in power, there have been more billionaires created in Russia than, than previously. And of course there are a lot of structural reasons for that, but it, it, to me, it always sent, it always points to the fact that, you know, capitalism uh, is doing very well for those people in, in Russia today, despite all of the limitations and constraints. Yeah, very much. I mean, that's that's a, a key sort of indicator, if you like. I mean, and the other thing I would say is also that, um, well, I guess two more things that are, are worth pointing out um, is that um, the the state ownership of of natural resources, which is seen as a, one of the major signs of a kind of state takeover of the Russian economy. I mean, there's a sense in which Russia is really reverting to the global norm by doing that, right? It's only the US is exceptional in having privately owned oil companies. Every other oil producing country, nearly all of them are state owned, including, you know, such, you know, communist powerhouses as Norway and Saudi Arabia, right? So, so there's a sense in which that is an adjustment. I mean, and the other interesting thing really is I'm, you'd have to go into much more detail and know much more about the, the internal operations of these companies. But my sense from, you know, what I've read is that Russian state companies don't behave significantly differently from private companies in terms of investment strategy and in terms of who the money goes to. It's not, I mean, you know, Rosneft is not 
being used as a kind of a treasure chest for bounteous social programs. For example, if you compare it with how uh, Hugo Chavez used PDVSA in Venezuela, that you know really the oil money was directly going to fund medical programs, social programs of different kinds, housing, education. Um, Russia is not doing any of that. No, I, I know that. I have a sense of that too, just from talking to people who know Russian state media very well in the, in the sense of they're under the same kind of market constraints as any other and market expectations um, as any other media outlet, you know, to make a profit, to grow audience, et cetera, et cetera. So in, it, despite, you know, whoever owns it, it still operates under the same logic of, of profit making. Yeltsin Putin period is, is one contentious thing of debate, but the other uh, important debate and, and one that you touch on repeatedly in your book is this question of the nature of Russian capitalism and its development in the post-Soviet period. Uh, and even here you get uh, similar to views on the Yeltsin versus Putin, you get different understandings of uh, you know defenses of the 1990s versus condemnation of the present and vice versa. So, and, and a lot of this comes to how someone, how one understands the development of capitalism. So how do you understand it's capitalism's development in post-Soviet Russia? Um, I mean, I think there's one of the things that's very noticeable uh, about discussions of capitalism in Russia itself is that there's this assumption of a, of a kind of abstract model that will eventually take root, right? That somehow... And I think this is also true, I mean, mainly true of the Western advisors and analysts, but certainly true of many Russian liberals themselves, that there is this idea that there was this clean slate uh, on which you could build a, a market economy from scratch, uh, and therefore anything that went wrong could be blamed on vestiges of the past that were somehow hanging around. Um, and there was this just total, I think, willful neglect of how uh, capitalist systems are built in historical reality, right, involving actual people, actual social relations, and that those things, uh, there is no, like, there is no capitalism in the abstract, right? It's always historically specified. Um, and so I think one has to look at how that model was created, and very deliberately so, by the early Yeltsin government to understand what it is now. Um, I spend a bit of time in one of the chapters on on the Russian elite because I think that close uh, dependent relationship between uh, private wealth and political power uh, and how that came about through the, the processes of privatization is really important to understanding how Russia works now. Uh, I mean, it, it was very clear from early on that the liberal reformers were, were really bent on pushing through uh, their reforms because there was a, an urgency to smashing the state uh, socialist economy, the planned economy, dismantling it. And they really didn't care in whose hands this property ended up. The priority was to create a layer of property holders, whoever that was. Um, and that was out of a commitment to some, you know, this liberal idea of property holders as the foundation of uh, a, uh, a wealth generating system. But it was, it was also politically expedient as well. I mean, I think they understood that they had a political window that they had to take advantage of in, a, in almost, I think it was what Hayek or Milton Friedman spoke about this, that, that you have to take advantage of a disaster to because you could push through reforms that you wouldn't otherwise be able to push through. Right, right. So there's a high speed element to this. And this this meant that, you know, a lot of there's a to me, the, the founding kind of contradiction of Russian capitalism is that um, the priority was always the capitalism and the democracy always finished second. So if you if you'd wanted to have a demo, uh, sort of if you'd wanted to have a democratic transformation of the Soviet planned economy into a capitalist one, it would have taken a very long time. It would have been messy and difficult, but I think you know more worthwhile if you decided that was necessary. But the the priority given to the capitalist component of that and the creation of markets just meant that you had this very rapid uh, and non transparent creation of inequalities. And so to me, that founding moment of Russian capitalism uh, is, is key to, to how the system then developed, because everything that happens in the rest of the 90s and uh, Yeltsin's uh, re-election, uh, the response to the 98 crisis, his nomination of Putin as a successor, all of that is geared to defending those outcomes, right? That the, the, the moment of creation in the early 1990s is very messy and unequal and unjust, and everything that happened since then is designed to just shore that up. 
I mean, this is a very crude summary, but in terms of how Russian capitalism developed, there is this sort of, you know, big bang moment of just, I think, flagrant injustice. And then that's built upon rather than undone or reversed. Mm -hmm. So so how would you uh, compare, uh, if you can, Russian capitalism as it developed in the 1990s and functions today with other uh, places in the world that ha- are like middle income countries, like in, La- say, Latin America, which you also know quite well? There are definitely, you know, similarities just uh, in terms of the speed of privatization. I mean, the moment uh, for that was the sort of second half of the 80s, early 90s. And certainly you have, I mean, in Mexico, which I know best, there's uh, rapid privatization and creation of oligarchs, or for want of a better term, I mean, similar kinds of figure. And Carlos Slim is the best known of these guys. Um, But I would say that those unfolded in a very different social context. not to say that it made them better uh, or any less uh, punitive in their outcomes, um, but the Russian one I think is is just distinctive in the degree of systemic collapse that that was that that supplied the context for this. And I think especially important is the the total kind of atomization of the population. It made any kind of mass resistance to this very difficult, um, and and any kind of organized. Uh, response from organized labor was was uh, surprisingly lacking. Um, I think also there's a there's a real difference in terms of the shape of the economy. Into that Russia was this you know very large industrial economy which you know collapsed. I mean really over the course of the 1980s you could argue or even longer uh, it was already in a kind of decline. Um, and in Latin America I think the industri- the weight of industrial labor the weight of the industrial piece of the economy was just not as great so these were economies that were already shifting to some kind of uh, you know a large part of the economy being oriented towards services or informal labor and I think in Russia all of that transformation was loaded into the kind of post 91 period uh, so it feels like there are a lot of a lot of simultaneous and very different kinds of transformation happening at once in Russia after 1990 91. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes it so traumatic, I think, is the, the overlaying of all these different kinds of, uh, of transformation. Well, let's let's talk about some of those, because I recall reading somewhere uh, one of Stephen Kotkin's essay. I know I think it was in Stephen Kotkin's book, uh, Armageddon Averted. He speaks about he had a really good observation that, you know, we mis- mistakenly see 1991 as an event uh, rather than a, a process. So the collapse of the USSR is 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 often somewhat narrated as this thing that happens and then the transition kicks in. And and what Kotkin uh says if I remember correctly is that you know it's better for us to understand the the collapse of the USSR as a process of collapsing that continues well into the 1990s. So and and you talk a lot about the social and economic impact of this collapsing system. So what was that impact on society of this, you know, slow collapsing of the Soviet system into up until the into the two thousands? Yeah, I think seeing it as a process makes a lot of sense um, because precisely because of this large systemic aspect to it. I mean, you can narrate the the fall of the USSR as an event if you take a kind of narrow enough perspective and look at you know what happened over the course of you know, X period of weeks. But really, if you're looking at it from a systemic perspective, you have to have a much larger time frame and possibly go back to the like to the late Brezhnev period, right? And look at the slowdown of the Soviet economy and the, the inability to overcome uh, all of these sort of bottlenecks and uh, uh, the flaws in, in the planned economy. Um, I think in terms of the, the social impact of the collapse, I mean, certainly the kind of rapid uh, dismantling of the planned economy had a huge uh, social impact. Uh, one of the most, uh, sorry, lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, one of the things that marks Russia out, I think, among uh, post-communist states, uh, and certainly compared to Eastern Europe, is the degree to which it wasn't really mass unemployment that resulted, although there was a lot of that. But really what happened more was mass underemployment, where people were you know, kept on the books at a factory and they would show up to work but not get paid. And it wouldn't do anything for, you know, six months or a year or whatever it was. So you, what you have in Russia is this process through which uh, what is already a kind of semi-ruined, especially industrial sector, is just limping on 
generating no real work and no real output as far as I can tell. Um, and people are simultaneously having to earn a living doing something else. Um, and so I, I put a lot of emphasis on, on a kind of parallelism of old and new in Russia. And I think this is one of the just concrete ways in which you can see it, right? There were, there were people who would go to a factory job for which they would not get paid, but they would still go because it was that job that entitled them to all kinds of social benefits and housing, you know, residency registration and whatever it was. Um, but to make money, they would have to go and, you know, sell encyclopedias door to door or, uh, drive a cab or clean apartments or whatever. So there is this sort of great social confusion, uh, generated out of that. Um, I mean, and the, the other one is just materially, it had a sudden impact in terms of, uh, creating huge deprivation. Uh, and at the same time, huge inequalities, right? So there's suddenly a, a layer of incredibly wealthy people and at the same time, new kinds of impoverishment that really hadn't existed before. Um, I mean, the, the scale of homelessness was just, not that it didn't exist, of course, before, but it was just on a whole other scale. Um, and again, this is there are empirical measures of that in terms of um, what people's incomes were, malnutrition, health indicators, increased mortality. Um, and then... In addition to that, or rather as part of how that manifests, I try and talk a bit about the social experience of this, because, of course, you have new kinds of uh, social actor appearing, you know, before before the 90s, no one had ever seen an oligarch or, you know, it was unusual to see sort of shuttle traders or, you know, various kinds of private businessmen. Um, and so the whole social landscape has also really been transformed at the same time as you get these very raw uh, economic differences appearing. Mm -hmm. What about the, the 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 basic spatial organization of the Soviet economy in the sense that, you know, these factories, and this is something that I'm particularly interested in, I wonder if you can comment on is, you know, the, the factories in the Soviet Union, particularly the those in mono towns, were really the social and um, infrastructure of a city in the sense of not only was it a place of employment, it was also a place where the welfare state was also funneled through it. It was also the place in where utilities were also funneled, funneled through it. Do you have a sense how that, the, the, the fact that you have these factories limping along, how that also affected the institutional things that the workplace uh, provided for Soviet citizens? Yeah, definitely. That was a huge factor. Um, I mean, one of the, the key dynamics, I think, geographically speaking, of, of uh, the post-Soviet, the immediate post-Soviet years is, is uh, uh, a, the sudden production of regional inequalities. Um, one of the things that the Soviet planned economy did was to some extent muffle regional disparities, right? It would sort of even them out uh, by, you know, in a variety of ways. Um, and in the, you know, after 1991, you suddenly get these interlinked pieces of economy being broken apart. Um, and at the same time, regional governments are, I mean, this is one thing the Yeltsin government did, which I think is under remarked on, but had huge consequences that the, the central government devolved a lot of responsibility for, um, social welfare programs onto regional governments. Um, and the problem with this is regional governments in Russia have very different uh, resources and capabilities. Uh, you know, there are regions that oil producing regions or regions with factories that were still working and had some kind of output. Some of them just about managed to cover, you know, the holes in the social safety net, uh, whereas there are other regional governments that just had nothing. And so the, the geographical disparities that were suddenly, you know, emerging in the 1990s are hugely significant. And this applies very much to the, to the mono towns you're describing, right? That some of them, they they made a transition to some you know to a new model if you like uh i'm thinking the the key example in my mind is norilsk right which because that um was transferred into private hands to uh well potanin and prokhorov initially um and you know with the rising global commodity prices it managed to be profitable once more um and so that's a, that's a mono city that has survived and continued uh, and likewise, some of the larger monocities, the car plants were, I think, by all post-Soviet uh, post governments considered, you know, too big to fail. So they were propping them up in various ways with bailouts at different points. Uh, but then there are other towns which have really just sunk into a depression. And I think that experience is not unlike that of the Rust Belt, you know, in the US, certainly. Uh, but it just, again, it happened at high speed. 
and very dramatically. Um, so I think that I think this is one of the reasons it's become difficult in the West for people to really understand what is going on in Russia. I think it's because to really understand it, you have to just go and visit all of these places. And certainly I haven't done that. Um, I'm relying on a lot of other people's work to tell me, you know, what is going on in Western Siberia, because that's totally unlike the Caucasus and totally unlike, you know, uh, Leningrad province or, you know, all of these things that you need. Uh, there's a real problem of assembling a coherent national picture because it's, it, it's so diverse and increasingly so. Hey, dear listeners, I just wanted to say thanks to everybody who listens to the SRV podcast. And the support that many of you have given to the show, this podcast wouldn't exist if listeners didn't show the love, especially by chipping in money every month. But I also wanted to make an appeal to the silent majority out there who listen on a regular basis and do little in return for the pleasure. So I want all of you to think about what this podcast means to you. If it's worth $5 or $10 a month, then show me the money. Hell, if it's only worth $1 a month, then that's fine too. There are things I want to do in the coming year to diversify the format of the podcast. I want to do some historical documentaries. I want to provide more transcripts of interviews. And I want to do some more live events. All of this, unfortunately, takes money. So become a patron at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog. Go to iTunes and write a review. Tell your friends or just drop me a line to express your appreciation or offer some in-kind services. So I hope you guys all enjoy the show, and I hope you keep supporting it. And for those of you who aren't supporting it, I hope you start to. I want to thank everybody for listening and for your support. I'm done for now. Now on with the show. This analytical framework where you're trying to decenter Putin, um, it raises the the question of the how do how should one if we are going to decenter Putin, how should we understand Putinism if this if you think this is a thing. Um, so it, as you're doing writing this book, um, is there a way for us to understand Putinism without Putin or at least a decentered Putin? Yeah, I tend to think there is actually. Um, I think Putinism understood not necessarily as a kind of coherent ideology, but as, a, if you like, a, a social settlement, we can call it that, where uh, the regime provides certain goods uh and a certain set of expectations about how things are going to go. And the population, you know, broadly speaking, provides its democratic consent to allow that system to continue. Um, I think there was, uh, in the early Putin years, a distinct kind of settlement, which was the promise of increased material prosperity, a recovery of national dignity in, in ideological terms, um, and the idea that Russia would now be choosing its own developmental path. Right. There are all these sort of and there are many more components to it. But I think it is it was at least at that point, a coherent uh, uh, sort of shape. Um, and I think the Medvedev years didn't really have that. Um, I think there was this idea of modernization, which never really got off the ground. Um, but I think and I think it wasn't really clear to what extent you could differentiate a Medvedev electorate from a Putin electorate, whereas I think it's much easier to identify a Putin voter. Uh, than any other politician. So in a sense, you can imagine um, that system, you know, as a coherent entity. I think after 2012 and Putin returns and he's dealing with the fallout of the financial crisis, and at this point, you know, this is uh, not a situation, a global economic context in which the government can guarantee increased income for everyone, right? Then it has to have some other ideological set of emphases. Um, and at which point I think it takes so much more of a nationalist uh, turn uh, without turning into a kind of, you know, actually confiscating anyone's assets or nationalizing anything at all. Um, so it's still committed to a kind of neoliberal uh, model with some sort of status tinges in key sectors, but ideologically it's undergone a little bit of a shift in a nationalist direction. And again, I think that is, broadly speaking, I think uh, Putinism still has the same electorate as it did in the early 2000s. I think that's been carried over. And the country has evolved. The, the the Putin majority has has gone along with that transformation. So I think you could say there is a, socially speaking, there is Putinism. Um, the question of whether you can imagine Putinism without Putin, I think you can, as long as that project is in place, right? That you could imagine another person being put in charge of that same project um, and continuing and carrying forward that social support base. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about, and, and I'm wondering if you have an opinion about it. So, you know, the emphasis by the Putin government has been, you know, this issue of stability, that we're not going to go back to the 1990s where everything was chaotic. We're about reestablishing the state. We're about providing social stability. Um, and, you know, they, they keep using this less and less, but they keep using it. And I'm wondering if it has diminishing returns in the sense of, you know, now the electorate, their formative experience is not the 1990s, but the, two, but the, the good years of the 2000s. And I'm wondering how those that their exp, the electric expectations have changed in the sense of, well, it's no longer about providing us stability. It's about providing us the good life. Uh, do you do you think that also has a one of the problems that the Putin government and the system has been trying to or incapable of dealing with in the last couple of years? Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. I think, and and some of this is is a question of time. You know that they've been there so long that that there is there's there are whole generations who don't have the same who aren't afraid of the same things, right? The, the, the 1990s are, you know, they are now this sort of mythical period for people below a certain age in Russia, which is now, you know, a huge chunk of the population, that it is this sort of mythical dark time, but it's not real to them. Um, and I think that generational cohort, if you like, is not going to be convinced by that uh, rhetoric. Uh, I mean, I mean, and the, this you can see in the fact that, I mean, again, these are very small numbers relative to the population, but it's very striking that, for example, uh, Alexei Navalny's protests uh, that he's been holding, you know, sporadically over the past few years, the the demographic of the most active part of that movement is teenagers. Um, and it's phenomenal to see that, that the people who are really willing to go out and get arrested and contest the system in very, very uh, confrontational terms are people who have known nothing but Putinism. Uh, and so appeal to the 90s are not going to work on these kids. Um and I think that's that's one of the things that, that the regime, the the real one of the real problems it faces, if you like, is to try and invent a new uh, ideological uh, sort of setup for itself that will do the task again, right? That they can't just keep doing what they've done in before because it worked. And the thing really is that these types of regime are not very good at reinventing themselves on the fly. It usually takes some kind of crisis to provoke a reinvention, some kind of transition. Um, from one leader to another or some kind of emergency. I mean, sadly, it often, like, it, it wars generate this kind of outcome as well. It's very hard for a regime that sees itself as having successfully managed uh, a whole period of time to decide to just change things, right? And there's, and there's so many, and especially because there are so many concrete interests at risk, you'd have to inconvenience a lot of the elite themselves in order to change things. Um, but I think that is ultimately where the, the, the fate of this regime is going to play out with Putin or without, right? Can it reinvent itself and can it come up with a new project that's coherent enough to compel uh, people to support it? I'm not convinced that it can, but, you know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I actually, I think this is a really, really critical problem in the sense of, and, and just to put it sim- simply, is that, you know, is this system going to provide uh, a more future looking outcome in the sense of, you know, this is what the system is going to provide for your family and kids for the next generation. And you're, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that regimes like this, they're very good about playing on the past. They're very good about doing what works, but they're not really good about making that essential pivot when the gas runs out of all of those previous methods to kind of pivoting towards, you know, what is what is tomorrow going to be and how is tomorrow going to be either somewhat better than today? Right. Yeah, I think, and they don't have, I think, that long-term uh, vision, really. Now, one of the things about uh, Russian society uh, is, you know, in a lot of Western reporting, every time there's a protest, there's a lot of excitement, but there's a lot of political activity going on in Russia all the time. Uh, small, large protests, uh, even you know, labor disputes and other forms of civic and civic and political activism. So, and and you write about Russia's opposition, both opposition with a capital O, but also the lower levels of you know people who aren't cohered into a, a general movement. But how do you understand this oppositional political activity in in Russia? I mean, I try and 
It's perhaps overly schematic, but I divide it really into two types of opposition. One is 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 a political opposition, which has uh, which focuses on opposition to the Putin system and tries to secure a political uh, challenge. Sorry, that doesn't make sense. Let me start that again. Um, <laughs> yeah, I try and divide the opposition perhaps a bit too schematically into kind of two categories. One is a political opposition, which has uh, as its goal to overturn or challenge the Putin system and put in place a different uh, government that will uh, get rid of the worst features as they see it of the current government. Um, but then on the other hand, I think there is a much broader and more diffuse uh, set of social movements, uh, which arguably, you know, they're not all oppositional, uh, even, you know, even in, according to their own definitions, but a lot of them are I, as I see it, in opposition to the outcomes of Putinism, right? So they, these are movements for uh, reform of the housing system or to resist uh, monetization of education, to resist hospital closures, uh, austerity in all of these uh, different sectors. There's also ecological movements. There's anti-corruption movements of different kinds. And so there is a kind of fairly broad but very diffuse uh, opposition to the outcomes of Putinism um, that... I think as yet doesn't have hasn't assembled into a challenge or into something proposing an alternative model, um, but that's the direction. If you put all of these things together, what they would amount to is just the idea that we need to do things differently on a very basic level. And I think the political opposition. I mean, again, it's it's dominated in Western reporting by Navalny, but there's also a lot of other figures, and ideologically, it is very diverse. Um, but broadly speaking, you could imagine that these these political oppositionists, I mean, they're, they're dominated by liberal tendencies, I would say. Um, the left is tiny within that uh, uh, within that field. And certainly there are right wing movements and nationalists who are, who are very much present, but they don't dominate in the way that the liberals do, I think. Um, but those oppositionists, I think, are geared to uh, trying to win power and, if anything, carry forward uh a more thorough liberal transformation of Russia. So their, their critique is that this is a corrupt system that hasn't put in place enough capitalism, if you like. And so I think there is a real split. I mean, these different oppositions I'm talking about, the social one and the political one, there's no reason why they couldn't combine uh, and form some kind of electoral front that would be very broad-based and would pose a real threat to the regime. But on the other hand, I think they have very, uh, their interests run in very different directions because one of them does see what it wants to do within the framework of the existing socioeconomic order and the other one is 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 really comes out of a discontent with that system and so i think that's the real tension uh between these russian oppositions um and i think it is worth highlighting those broader kind of social movements that you describe because those often get they either get left out of western analysis right because no one you know knows uh, the Western reporters don't necessarily know what's happening with housing in, you know, Astrakhan or wherever it is, or they just get assimilated to the liberal oppositionists as if, oh, there are housing movements in, you know, Siberia who are opposed to Putin. So therefore we can think that they're part of the opposition. How well do they get on with Navalny, for example, becomes the question. And I think they're really actually across purposes a lot more of the time. Although I should say, uh, I mean, one thing that sort of became apparent to me sort of more after finishing the book uh, is is the degree to which Navalny seems to be, I think, aware of this disparity and is trying to address it somewhat. Um, I mean, his, his 2018 presidential platform, I mean, he wasn't allowed to run, but he put out a platform. It was much more socially uh, oriented, tilted somewhat to the left, uh, compared, certainly compared to his previous positions. And so there's a sign that he may be aware of, of the gap, if you like, between the liberal opposition currents and all of these social movements and be taking some sort of steps to, to, to reduce that gap. Yeah. I mean, one could even point to his recent, uh, I mean, I don't know what to really make of it or if anything will ever come with it, but his, his recent desire to create some sort of labor union or at least a labor grievance uh, body uh, to help people who have, you know, complaints about their workplace and salaries and stuff. So, I mean, if anything, it's a, it's a sim it's a gesture that he's been moving into as you said for the last year year two or three two or three years to you know take the social economic realm of, of Russian politics more seriously yeah and I guess there's a sense in which it he it's not inconsistent with his 
with his original stances, right? Because, you know, he, before striking out on his own, he was a member of Yablaka, uh, which you could say is a, is a social liberal party, right? It's not a pure neoliberal party per se. It does ha- at least have some kind of, certainly Yavlinsky always talked about some need for, to, for programs that would address the social consequences of, of the free market. So it, it's not incoherent and it, and it makes a lot of uh, strategic sense for Navalny to tilt in that way as he's obviously worked out. How does Russia fit into the world? And not just geopolitically in its relationship with the West in particular, since that's its, the main tension nowadays, but how does it fit within this larger capitalist world system? Yeah, I think the problem Russia really has is that it doesn't fit anywhere, um, neither politically, uh, I mean, strategically nor economically. It's, it's the problem really is the, is the huge disparity between its its sheer size and its uh, military importance. You know, the the size of this nuclear arsenal that it possesses just makes it a different kind of player. Um, but compared to its actual economic capacities. Um, and the shape of its economy, right? So there's, it, it, it's if you imagine a country like Brazil, but having half the world's nuclear weapons, then you get something like the the disparity is there. And I think you know there's a sense in which a lot of what's been happening with Russia over the past sort of thirty years really is an attempt to kind of work out how to deal with this disparity between uh, the the great power status or former great power status and its current actual capacities. Um, I mean, this is one of the things that's that's I think surprises you know people who don't follow Russia when you point this out to them. But if you tell them that economically speaking, in terms of GDP per capita, I mean Russia is about on the same level as Brazil or Turkey, um, and and so that makes people somewhat uh, reassess their idea of Russia being this huge existential threat to the U.S. Uh, I mean the other statistic I often I like to wheel out because it's so telling is you know when Putin took power. He said, with a bit of luck, and in 15 years, we can get to the GDP per capita of Portugal. Uh, right. And they did They did that in 2011. So, you know, ahead of schedule. But obviously, by that time, Portugal, which was, you know, one of the weakest economies in the Eurozone, mired in recession, huge unemployment. But even at that point, Portugal still had a GDP one per capita, one and a half times that of Russia. So you can imagine, I think, as a in terms of just raw economic weight in the world, Russia is not anything like a major player. And I think, you know, crucially, it's very dependent on raw materials exports. And so it has a lot of the strategic dilemmas of a developing country. But the the problem it really has is that it it doesn't have it's it's already been through industrialization, it's already been through the demographic transition, it's not growing demographically, so it doesn't have the resources, uh, the potential, if you like, that a lot of these other emerging economies do. Um, so, you know, in a sense, it's sort of caught in a weird version of a developmental trap, uh, like countries like, you know, uh, well, Brazil is the obvious one in terms of size, but but even actually smaller economies that are very dependent on oil, you could compare it to. But it but it doesn't have the potential of those countries to to grow and exceed that uh, that framework. I mean, um, nor nor is it in any capacity to become a you know kind of manufacturing hub like say China and India and some of the South Asian nations have been able to do in the last 20, 30 years. Because first off, there's already a lot of competition. Its population is is tends to be on education level higher. Um, and it has a, a mostly urbanized population on top of it with a lot of expectations of being, you know, a, a global power and not a rump state of, of some larger economy. So even if, you know, one of the dilemmas I see is that even if Russia made a concerted effort to get off of, you know, exporting raw materials, it doesn't have a lot of options in terms of a viable way to replace a lot of that economic activity. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the other key point is that the raw materials uh, sector on which it's so dependent doesn't employ that many people. So, um, and a lot of the other things that Russia would be able to do well, for example, I mean, the, the high education level of the population means that they they should be, you know, a world leader in software and tech, perhaps, and they could maybe make more of a bet on that. But even that, those jobs, as we know, in the US too, don't generate a lot of employment, relatively speaking. Um, so there is a real problem. I think for now, Russia does have some other sort of mid-range 
strategies they're clearly pursuing. I mean, it's now, I think, after Canada, the second largest grain exporter in the world. Um, so there's natural resources, there's grain. I think probably there's a, there's a way in which what's left of Russian manufacturing could serve, uh, could be useful in terms of exports to countries that can't afford the higher value machinery, for example, from Germany and Holland and the European manufacturing powers, right? If you're a mid-range country, you would you might want to buy Russian tech, Russian machinery because you can't afford, you know, whatever the Dutch are making. But I think the Chinese have probably they're going to be able to outcompete them on that front as well. Um, so did yeah, there is. It's really difficult to see what Russia's place is going to be in this you know new world uh, economic order, certainly. And I think that's that's another tension Russia is going to have to navigate between, you know, and this is partly a thing I, I wanted to explore more in the book and perhaps will do in future is the, the relationship between Russia and China and how, uh, you know, that is always the relationship of the future. But it's striking to me how that hasn't yet happened in the way everyone assumed it would in the 1990s or even the 2000s. And it's still, you know, Russia and China now have a much closer trading relationship. And I think China is now the largest individual trade partner. But it's only recently snuck ahead of Holland. And what about you, Russia's relationship and the the tensions over the last couple of years with the the so-called West? How do you understand those? I mean, again, I think one has to sort of zoom out a bit from all of the very heated Cold War rhetoric and the assumptions of you know this terrible dictatorial regime doing these awful things. I mean, again, as someone who's very critical of Putin and has been since he came to power, I, I share some of those criticisms, but. I think the the real thing you have to look at to understand the whole dynamic of relations between Russia and the West is just this fundamental disparity of power that the West, well, predominantly the US, um, but certainly once you uh, once you treat NATO as a unit, which militarily uh, it is, uh, just the the economic and military weight of the Western powers combined relative to Russia is, is just there's just a no comparison between the power of the two or rather there is a comparison uh, one is much more powerful than the other and I think that much greater power and influence of the West translates into all kinds of areas not just raw military strength but also the capacity to persuade other states that it's worth aligning with the West rather than Russia uh, and we saw this in the case of Ukraine right that that there's, there's been a tug of war going on over Ukraine for obviously years and years and years now um, but one of the striking things is that Russia really doesn't have anything to offer any Ukrainian government, even a pro-Russian Ukrainian government. There, there's no deal that Russia could offer that would be remotely as attractive as what the EU and NATO combined could offer. Um, and so, so there's a sense in which the the struggle over Ukraine, and for example, I see this that the sorry, hang on, let me go back again. The struggle over Ukraine can be seen as a measure of this uh, disparity in power and influence. Um, I mean, one of the things that's very striking is the, the the crudity of Russia's responses to the crisis in Ukraine. Right, the the, the annexation of Crimea, the the sending of troops semi covertly to the Donbas. These are, I think, you resort to that kind of measure when you don't have the kind of power that the West uh, and NATO, the EU combined, have. The fact that the West didn't have to resort to that, I don't see that as as uh, the West being morally superior. I think it's because they they're just so much more powerful. They don't even have to do that. Um, so so that that relationship, I think, explains to me why uh, the West has you know for so much of the post Cold War period been able to advance its interests without really taking into account. Uh, Russia's opposition to those uh, to those moves, so the expansion of NATO above all, but also the EU's economic expansion into Eastern Europe, um, and Russia has really been unable to do anything about that. Um, and I think for a long time, or certainly in the '90s, that was not seen as such a problem by the Russian government because there was, I think, implicit this idea that the the eastward expansion of certainly the EU and the common market would eventually come to embrace Russia. Um, I think a lot of the foreign policy establishment in Russia had that assumption, and that's proved to be totally false. Uh, and there were always people within both the EU and NATO who thought, you know, there is no way that Russia could be admitted to either of these structures, it will unbalance them completely. Um, so I think the whole sort of course of Western strategy has been designed to expand up to Russia's frontier and no more. Uh, and I think Russia has really spent the last, I think since the Ukraine crisis and probably earlier, 
you know, struggling to come to terms with the fact that the West is shaping its entire strategic environment and its economic relationships with the states around it, and it can't really do anything about it. And so I think that explains a lot of the the anger and the petulance of the tone of Russian foreign policy. Um, And the substance of it is is really, you know, I mean, again, this is a, a feature of certainly US and UK media is to sort of paint anything happening in Ukraine as a victory for Putin, and he's had another victory and he's outmaneuvered the West on Syria. But actually, a lot of these things, I personally think really are defeats for Putin and for Russia specifically. Right. I mean, in a way, in a way, they they want some sort of, you know, particularly on the Western borderlands, they want some sort of security guarantees, but they really have no way to get the other side to take those desires for a security guarantee seriously. Um, so they they instead, so they have to, in a way, strike out like in Crimea and in the Donbass to just make the situation or even in the Caucasus with Abkhazia and South Ossetia, just to make it so well, you know, the Western powers want to do X. So we're just going to make the situation there on the ground so difficult that they'll never be able to achieve their supposed goals. Right. I mean, the Russia is, it's, it's, you know, not powerful enough to change the situation, but it is powerful enough to make a mess of it and to make it difficult. Um, and, but that's the limit, you know, it's a spoiler in those contexts rather than a, than a reshaper of the whole context. And finally, um, how do you feel about Russia's future? Are you positive? Are you negative? Uh, what do you, what is your sense of the horizon over the next couple of years? Um, I mean, funnily enough, when I'm in Russia, I feel more optimistic than when I'm outside it, which is not usually the way that would go, I think, for a lot of people. But I just, I think there's a sense in which there's a lot more happening uh, politically, socially, uh, on the ground than is visible from outside, I think. I mean, that's always a cliche and that applies to every country. But I think in, in the case of Russia, there's just a lot more energy and creativity and possibilities, I think, on the ground uh, than one might believe there are from outside. Um, and I think there's there's a capacity for, uh, there's an interest in and a capacity for uh, self-reinvention uh, that, you know, the population as a whole has that I've certainly encountered that, that is at odds with this picture of a country that is mired in nostalgia for the Soviet period and wants to retain its great power status. I think, you know, and as, again, as, as someone who grew up in the UK, I feel like there's a lot, it takes a long time for collapsed empires to work out their new role in the world. Um, and arguably Britain is not still not doing very well at that. Uh, and if you look at France, similar question, uh, and, and these are powers, I should say, that are doing a lot of damage in the world with their post-imperial uh, syndromes. Um, so, and I think Russia is, is undergoing a similar process, um, and it's, it's clearly also been causing damage in some of the surrounding countries. So, th- these the things are not to be taken lightly. Um, but I mean the comparison to say that there is uh, th- this is going to take a while. But I think Russia will eventually find some role for itself in the world. The, the risk is really. Uh, you know, what we were talking about before in terms of what economic model, what social model can it arrive at that will provide enough uh, to the population as a whole and what kind of role can it carve out for itself in the world that is uh, satisfactory to the population. Um, that's more difficult to see, I think. Um, but I, yeah, I do sort of have some faith that they that something will be arrived at that, that is better than what they have now. I think... I don't know how long the Putin system will last, but I don't think it's, you know, eternal. Um, my hope would probably be that there will be some form of, uh, you know, democratization of that system uh, of a relatively stable kind without a sort of total state collapse. Um, like, in a sense, you know, the question is whether the Putin regime is going to go the way of the Soviet Union. It's going to have some, you know, catastrophic collapse or whether some other kind of transition is possible um and yeah one doesn't know how and when that scenario is going to play out but i yeah i do think they have the capacity certainly as a as a the populace population as a whole has the capacity to 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 do something better that was tony wood tony lives in new york and writes on russia and latin america He's a member of the editorial board of the new left review and the author of chechnya the case for independence His writing has appeared in the London Review of Books, The Guardian, N Plus One, and The Nation, among other publications. His new book is Russia Without Putin.
Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War, published by Verso. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on SoundCloud and iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything gonna be all right this morning. Oh, yeah. Now, when I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother said I was gonna be Alive. But now I'm a man. I passed 21. I want you to believe me, honey. I have lots of fun. I'm a man. Spell him. A child. Yeah. That rather than Child. I'm a rolling stone, my main child.